This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this live from Sierra Space episode of the show is the USNI News Editor-in-Chief, Sam Legrone. Hello, Sam. How's it going, Ward? It's going great. Um, actually, let me first say that we have our interns with us. Um, we took them out of, the, out of the office for the day, and they're having a blast here, right, guys? Yes, yep. Um, and I showed them the exhibition floor, and they're seeing... The uh, the business side of the the business, and uh, we were talking about RFPs and how the contract process works, and how the end user gets a vote, and what is the dynamic here. So that's been great for them to see that experience, and this is what Sam is all about. This is his wheelhouse, understanding that whole process and those things, and he's specializes in being first with the news. So Sam, a lot of headlines breaking about LCS and other things happening that uh, are of great interest to our audience. What, what's been on your plate in the last uh, couple of days? Oh, well, um, I think the number one thing that everyone's sort of uh, struggling, and I think that's the right word, struggling with right now, is what's the future outlook for acquisition in general for the Navy? So if you think back to when the budget came out in late May, so typically when the DOD submits the budget, what they'll put in there is a five-year defense outlook where they give you kind of a sense of, hey, this is sort of the trajectory that we're heading. So when you're planning, especially for ships and uh, large aircraft buys, you get a sense of where the DOD and the individual services are going. This year, there wasn't one, which isn't, isn't unheard of for a new administration. Um, the problem is, is because... In this particular case, there is almost no information coming out. So you have a very static view of the world. And on top of that, you know, there's some talk of a continuing resolution in terms of uh, budget tightening. So that in and of itself is also another unknown. So there's more unknowns than knowns, really, in terms of how things are going. But the number one kind of theme is, hey, you're going to have to live with the money that you've got. You know, budgets are going to be tight. Things are going to stay flat. Um, and then how do you maneuver underneath that and there's a, just a lot of questions and there's not a lot of really ready answers so i think that's the vibe pretty much across the entire show is where is that direction where are things going and how can we sort out how the money component of this is going to look like two or three years or four years down the road when we don't have a ton of information about what people are thinking or that you know they're still working on the plans and they haven't gotten quite back to everyone yet so you know gilday in his remarks yesterday as reported by by your team, kind of admonished industry for maybe getting too far over their skis. Yeah, he was talking about, specifically, he was talking about um, companies lobbying Congress around the Navy and around the DOD for individual programs. 
and um, we're pretty sure he was talking about the Super Hornet. So there's been a debate going back about 10 years or so about, well, what comes next after the Super Hornet, the FA-18EF, right? Uh, the, uh, the derivation, the Boeing derivation of the, the McDonnell Douglas classic. So what are you going to do after that? And so the Navy's been for about 10 years or so, maybe longer, kind of playing around with this idea of what is the next generation air dominance platform going to be. So if you look at the way that the carrier air wing is made up now, you have uh, in the Navy, you have all Super Hornets, uh, E's and F's, and then the F-35C is coming in and those are uh, replacing the Hornet squadrons, the the C and D Hornet squadrons, uh, which the Navy is pretty much divested of. And then the direct replacement for the Super Hornets, which is starting to come in the 2030s, is going to be whatever this next generation air dominance thing is. And, and everyone's been pretty closed-lipped as to what that's supposed to look like. Um, but the Navy made a decision uh, a couple years ago. It was like, all right, we're going to close down the Super Hornet line. And what we're going to do after that is we're going to start getting into this next generation air dominance built business. And what the FAXX could be an individual aircraft, could be a family of systems as they like to see. But uh, essentially what they're looking to replace is that capacity for carrying ordnance that the F-18 has or the, the Super Hornets have. They want a big old missile truck, uh, for lack of a better term. And they want to be able to, to load it up with all sorts of ordnance. Um, and they're going to have a lot of work to do to develop this aircraft because in the future, we're probably going to have a lot of directed energy as part of that. So the number one thing, which is probably on everyone's minds right now, is like, oh, you got to do a lot of engine development in addition to the airframe and on and on and on and on. And I think the CNO's point yesterday was, and we'll have some coverage. Uh, today is Tuesday. We'll probably have a story a little later on today uh, trying to put those comments in a little bit more context. The idea is um, the political, there's a you know pretty strong political base in Missouri that really wants to keep that Super Hornet line open. And the, you know, the companies uh, involved in the Super Hornet program are doing individual lobbying to you know, members of Congress to say, hey, with, and, and it makes sense on the surface. It's like, hey, we have a hot production line going. Um, you know, there isn't anything that's like fully baked coming down the pike. Why don't we go and, you know, keep this going until this sort of gets figured out? Um, and the CNO uh, yesterday essentially said, no, stop telling people that we need to continue to buy these aircrafts. Not naming the company, but it came out in a panel uh, a little later on today, uh, or yeah, earlier today, uh, that the 98 was like, yeah, yeah, they're talking about Super Hornets. Okay. It's probably the, a longer answer than no, you No, no, it's great. Um, so just reminding the audience that there were, uh, the program of record in the last administration was modified. I mean, keep, keep me honest here about, yeah, we, we kept the line open as a stopgap for JSF not being not arriving when when they thought it was right i mean they sort of wound up buying more super hornets than the original program of record so you had a couple of things going on there so you had jsf's introduction in the fleet getting kind of delayed um for you know developmental reasons uh, nothing catastrophic and then on top of that you had um the super hornets just getting wore out you know flying way more uh, than they originally anticipated. And a lot of that had to do with the air war over, uh, over Afghanistan, um, which is essentially you're, you're taking a, a, a high-end piece of gear to do a very relatively low-end mission. So, you know, how much are you spending in flight hours, uh, you know, pilot pay, uh, fuel to go and do a relatively basic uh, close air support mission? 
uh, with a platform that's designed to go toe to toe with, you know, Soviet aircraft as opposed to, you know, counterinsurgency missions. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those flight hours and a lot of that readiness hours got burned in that Afghanistan mission. So it kind of accelerated um, the Super Hornets uh, uh, use. In addition to that, you also had the um, the aerial refueling mission. That right. The, the organic tanker mission. So the Fs, yeah. uh, the Rhinos had that organic tanker mission. And so at the height of the air conflict over Afghanistan, that was responsible for anywhere from 25 to 30% of the flight hours was just tanking missions. Right, right. So you burned a lot of Super Hornet uh, uh, flight hours. So uh, uh, check me on this, but right, uh, right around 2011, 2012, they were talking about shutting down the line, but I think the, the mass of all of the flight hour burns plus the delays in the JSF caused them to extend the line and uh, get into a multi-year deal. Now we're sort of at that point again where the line's going to end and there's that lobbying effort again and again to, to go and keep the line open. Um, and again, CNOs, <laughs> hey, uh, maybe not because we've got to get on to the next thing. Okay. LCS has been in the headlines of US and I news that we're going to sunset independence after 12 years uh, in, in the fleet, um, shorter than was originally promised, let's say. So what's happening with that? What's that all about? Uh, well, the uh, first four LCS that were built were part of the initial contract competition. Um, so the the, the, the two brands of LCS that we have um, are the Independence Class, which is an aluminum trimaran that's made by Austell USA in uh, Mobile, Alabama. And then you have the Freedom Hull, which is made by Lockheed Martin uh, at the Fincanteri Marinette Marine Shipyard in uh, Marinette, Wisconsin, uh, right near the bottom of Green Bay, the actual bay. Um, and uh, those two variants of the... Um, literal combat ship are in two kind of different states of play right now. Um, so the independence variant is starting to be deployed in the Western Pacific a lot more. Um, they're getting uh, uh, anti-surface weapons that are added to them. So they're deploying now with the Naval Strike Missile, which is a missile that's made by a Norwegian company called Kongsberg and uh, in partnership with Raytheon uh, out of Tucson, Arizona. And they're manufacturing this this pretty capable uh, subsonic guided uh, anti ship missile, uh, and those are uh, you know uh, people will uh, argue with this, but those are kind of driving the the Chinese a little crazy in the South China Sea because it's a ship that can do forty knots, it drafts fourteen feet, it goes all sorts of places, and it has starting to have a credible anti ship capability. Here's a little preview for. For the uh, podcast audience, we've uh, just uh, got our hands on a translation of a, a Chinese uh, assessment of the United States Navy's distributed lethality plan. And they're all like, hey, man, this literal combat ship, we these are really interesting. And so when they get out into the fleet, uh, especially in the Western Pacific, you know, instead of the typical single Chinese frigate that goes and tails like any of our DDGs, they pull three or four. Because they want to see what they're up to. Yeah. So, so the, that platform is is having some success right now, um, but for a cost saving measure, the first four that were built, the first two Freedoms, which is the Lockheed Martin ship, and the Independence, which is the ones that the first two were originally built by General Dynamics, and the contract shifted over to Austell for the the competition. Those first four frigates don't have an upgraded combat system, 
and they're they're operating on a different version of they're operating on a different combat system and a couple of other different things that aren't necessarily compatible with the current fleet. So they've been used as test assets. So um, CNO has said that it could cost anywhere to two to two point five billion to keep these ships in line with the rest of the fleet. And so in order to save costs, they're going to have to get them out of the fleet. And so that's freedom, independence, Fort Worth. I think they're hanging on to Coronado. Uh, somebody's got to check me on that. And so independence was decommissioned on officially on July 31st. So uh, they had a very quiet ceremony where the public and media were not invited on the pier uh, to ceremonially take it out of the Navy. And then the next day they were, they were towed as quickly as possible up to the reserve fleet up in uh, Washington. So um, that's, that's part of it. I mean, LCS in and of itself is, is kind of a third rail. It's not even a third rail conversation. It's just one that uh, elicits a lot of emotion yeah. uh, from certain kinds of, uh, you know, sectors in, in, you know, sort of the, the, the maritime punditry. Um, so there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily super sad to see it go. So that's, that's kind of where LCS is, you know, sort of in general. And then on top of that, the um, freedom class has their own issues in particular dealing with the um, their combining gear. So these ships as designed were designed to go 40 knots. So the solution that General Dynamics and Austell came up with was we're gonna make an aluminum trimaran that can go uh, pretty quick on, um, it's just it's diesels, it's alone. It's a, it's a very efficient, um, you know, uh, uh, ship hull when it comes to moving through the water. The uh, Lockheed Martin version, the Freedom, they solve that problem with brute force strength. So you have a semi-planing hull, which means it kind of rides a little bit higher on the water. It's based on this uh, uh, Italian yacht. And in order to get the speeds, they essentially have uh, two big 20-valve uh, diesels. Uh, and then they link that to two NT30 uh, Rolls-Royce uh, gas turbines. And these are the some of the biggest maritime uh, gas turbines in terms of Mega, just pure megawatt production. And those things are linked together in this complicated gearing mechanism called a combining gear. So you take the raw power from the MT-30s and then the inputs from the diesel and you mesh them together with this, you know, reduction gear that sends the water to the, uh, send, sends uh, the power to the impellers and the water jets and gets the ship moving. And, and that combining gear, um, Naval Sea Systems Command in January determined was under-engineered. So you have 13 ships, uh, some in the fleet, some in uh, various stages of production that uh, are restricted now from using that combined power to go 40 knots. So they can only use their gas turbines and they can only use their diesels because they found that this original gearing was under-engineered. So that's a big thing that we've been paying attention to because you're limited in what you can do with freedom, the freedom class. So we're talking about um, every ship from Detroit, which is LCS-5, up to the under-construction Beloit, which is LCS-31. And so that whole class is um, that whole class is operating under these restrictions. And so what they're doing right now is they're working on a fix between Lockheed Martin, uh, Rank AG, the company that made the gearing, and then the Navy to figure out what to do because it's considered a class defect. And so now who fixes it, who's responsible for it, who pays for it, when do you do it? And that's been a big issue with uh, the Lockheed LCS right now. So, um, you know, those ships were, you know, scheduled to potentially, you know, no one said officially, 
to go out to Bahrain and operate out of Fifth Fleet. But a lot of those plans are stalled right now because uh, you don't have that full umph, that full 40 knot um, transit speed. So that's part of the uh, situation that's going on with LCS. Um, so that's kind of where we're at now. And sort of some of this information is kind of trickling out this week, and we're hoping to get a little bit more later on. I mean, it's always been a platform in search of a mission, sort of, right? I mean, there's the original promise, the original um, requirements that it was supposed to meet, and, and then it had some huge engineering, very high-profile engineering failures, both in Westpac and up in Lake Erie or wherever it was, stuck in Montreal for a winter. That was just timing. Right. That, okay. was, that, was, that was bad timing. Okay. Uh, yeah, bad slash good, um, depending on your liberty situation. But, um, you know, the whole modular, like plug and play, it's an ASW platform, you know, plug and play, now it's an AAW platform. All of that has never been the case, right? That's never proven out. But now we find a weapon system and, and some viability, and it's interesting that you guys are about to report on the fact that the Chinese are like concerned about this, this, this class now. So I think from the Chinese perspective, again, you know, this is going to be fun to get to. Um, but from the Chinese perspective, they're seeing an, uh, um, uh, a relatively low cost ship that the Navy's building that has some, some kind of punching power, which is not necessarily how the United States Navy does things. They go and they build big old ships with lots and lots and lots of missiles that are extremely expensive and take a long time to build. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how kind of that small surface combatant, because like, again, uh, the LCS are, you know, pretty big. They're 3,000 ton. I mean, they're essentially a, a small frigate, you know, given, you know, what we call a frigate these days. So sort of refining that idea in terms of what they can do and what they're good at has been kind of something that you hear with the operational folks. So uh, Admiral Mers, who's the seventh fleet, outgoing 7th Fleet Commander, actually just uh, moved over and he is going back to the building and I forgot his job off the top of my head. But he uh, made a pretty impassioned uh, uh, pitch for them as the, uh, you know, as the fleet commander with the most experience, going like, they're doing stuff that I want them to do. I mean, there are liabilities. The The maintenance model is a little is a little wacky. It's supposed to be fly-in contractor support. That's expensive. Um, NAVC is trying to figure out how to get sailors to uh, go and fix the gear themselves as opposed to contractor support. Um, you know, there's some there's always been survivability questions with the platform. Um, and then also the mission packages, right? So the idea that uh, you're going to have a complete mission package that you can flow on and flow off, and they're sort of largely getting rid of that. And for the independents, they're starting to put on elements of the MCM mission. And that's the number one thing that the Navy needs to figure out because the MCM mission is not particularly exciting right now or ever because it's really boring, but it's also really dangerous. Uh, NAVC puts out this great chart where um, it looks at the you know post-World War II, um, what ships were damaged, ships that were damaged, uh, and what damaged them and you know so you think in missiles act of terrorism etc by far it's mines there, there's so much sort of intrinsically cultural about employing lcs and how to understand employing them with the rest of the surface fleet and then how that fits in with sort of the needs of the navy that it's really really complicated and it's very difficult to sort of kind of tease out what exactly is going on with that platform, especially when, you know, there's just such an overwhelming, like, negative view of the, uh, of, of LCS. So uh, it gets to be really 
fraught and really, really complicated. And if, honestly, if you want to have an on, honest conversation about LCS, I'm like, well, what do you like? What do you don't like about it? You know, you're 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 obviously uh, uh, not interested in in the tenets of surface warfare, and you 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 hit some kind of uh, uh, sort of cultural barrier in terms of um, how you perceive the Navy and their roles and their missions. And, it, and it's just such a complicated thing to get into. Yeah, it is, it is complicated. <laughs> The other thing that the CNO brought up, or the other thing that, that you guys were talking about in the article is some of this is shifting money from LCS to FFGX. Um, so what's what are the details of that that moving of money? So FFGX, in terms of uh, coming online with the service, um, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have a decent LCS or FFGX uh, update later. On. Oh, they're not even FFGXs anymore. They're FFG sixty twos, the constellation the constellation class. class yeah. Exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, the the Navy is really interested in FFGX for. Um, being a real uh, kind of integral part for future surface action groups. Um, so where you have, uh, you know, either a wolf pack of those uh, that can go after submarines, um, you know, they're going to get a really interesting bow array sonar. So these are the um, ships that are based on the Italian Fram um, uh, anti-surface uh, and uh, ASW um frigates um that, that are also being made up in wisconsin also being made by yeah. fink and terry so yeah. lockheed martin is not involved with this but it's the same yard yeah uh so the that the first one the constellation is set to come out at the later part of the decade and they're going to work on it for two or three years sort of developing those con ops and its first patrol is probably going to be sometime in fiscal year 30 so it's it's still a ways out so it's a it's a good nine years before they start entering the fleet but they have a some concepts that you know they haven't said explicitly but you can kind of see around the edges so these ships are going to be loaded with all sorts of data links and the emerging uh large surface um uh large unmanned surface vehicle uh which is essentially the size of like an offshore patrol vessel for like um oil and gas manufacturing work um they're supposed to have a, a little um you know, uh, VLS magazine. And so they're going to be sidekicks for larger surface ships. And the Navy hasn't said it explicitly, but if you look at sort of the data links that are associated with uh, the 62 class, um, there's a, there's a credible con ops where you can go and have two or three of these guys be, uh, operate as a surface action group separate from the carrier strike group or from an argmu, And, um, have a lot of these little L uh, USV buddies that are with them as a, a additional magazine. So the number one thing that people are worried about, especially in a, a Western Pacific engagement, is going Winchester, because you know getting more missiles downrange if you're in a big old DDG is is hard to do. But you know if you have uh, your organic 32 cell, because that's what the FFGX or I'm sorry FFG 62 has. If you have your own organic 32 cell VLS. Um, but you can supplement that with your 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 floating you know unmanned buddies to to add as an additional magazine. You can stay on station and you can flow in LUSVs in and out. And then on top of that, you've got smaller USVs to go and act as you know sort of your sensing network. And you have all of a sudden a pretty interesting sort of uh, dynamic in terms of limited manpower and you know limited like big ship hulls. But you have some of that stuff there. So we see that potentially as a big role for um, the Connies in the future. The other thing to think about is ASW is a big deal um, that uh, arguably the Navy hasn't invested a ton in. Um, you know, you've got your DDG-51s with with a pretty robust 
uh, ASW capability. But, you know, the, L- the one of the promises of LCS is you were supposed to get that variable depth sonar that you could take uh, to get below the layer to find those those really tricky Russian submarines. They don't build them fast, but they're pretty good. Um, and uh, that was going to be a, a big thing to worry about, you know, more or less in the Atlantic, but, you know, also in the Pacific, too. So that's going to be a, a big role that we're looking at for um, the Connies in the future. And then in addition, there'll be, you know, high value escort stuff. Right. So think about, you know, the Fletcher class in World War Two. Uh, there will be some some good roles uh, and responsibilities for the FFGX there. So it, essentially, uh, uh, 62, uh, sorry. Uh, but essentially, like these big missions where you have like a DDG as an individual deployer, it's 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 just too much mustard for that sandwich. Um, so you get something that's appropriately right size and has more capability than kind of what LCS does. So that's, that's sort of where we're seeing... Um, the 62 and how it's going to uh, join the fleet and, and enter in there. And so, you know, they're working on those con ops. But, I mean, it seems like the program's going well. Um, the Italian design that they base it on was actually pretty robust, uh, the original Fincantari one. So it looks like um, they're getting close to the critical design review and then they're going to go start construction um, and hopefully have it all done by the end of the decade. So that, that'd be IOC end of the decade kind of thing. Uh, I think so. Uh, I don't have my notes in front of okay. me. Speaking of high value assets, Ford class, we haven't talked for some months. Um, you guys reported on the, what do you call it? Where you blow up the, you know, uh, that, oh, the, right. the shock called? trials, the shock trials, shock trials. I guess it registered three point something on the <laughs> Richter scale. So yeah, that's the uh, so you know Navy. The Navy's always uh, a little coy to talk about operations, but it's very difficult to hide a three point nine Richter scale explosion right. yes. off the coast of because they didn't want to do it right. Originally, they didn't want to do the shock trial on Ford. On Ford, they wanted to wait until uh, Kennedy. Kennedy, yeah. yeah, they wanted to wait until Kennedy, and then McCain. This was one of his. Sure. Last acts on on the Sask was to make them do it right shock trial. So yeah. so the Ford the Ford is a complicated story. Um, so if you look at sort of we're we're getting into a new generation of of ship design. But if you're looking at the previous generation of ship design from like uh, sort of originating around the year 2000, is the um, you know everything was supposed to be transformational. Everything was supposed to be you know you cram all the technologies that you can. So the the, the issue with the Ford, which is is coming along now. Um, and I think a lot of those gremlins are, are kind of ironed out initially. Um, the Navy's initial plan to for the Ford was to feather in technology, like five or six different new technologies over three hulls. So the thing that makes the Ford the most different from the Nimitz class is the fact that um, they have these electromagnetic catapults as opposed to the steam. So as opposed to the fat cats that are on kind of the later Nimitz class, and then they have this thing called the advanced arresting gear on the back end. So the promise of the electromagnetic catapult is it's easier to operate, easier to maintain because you're not dealing with all that steam. Um, so if you think about the, uh, the catapults, uh, steam catapults on a, on a regular Nimitz class, how many people are in there? A dozen? Yeah. How big is that department? Yeah. And if you've ever seen them tear those things up, you know, to work on them, they're like, holy smokes, what a mess. So the difference with the Ford class is on those emails is it's not a dozen people uh, when you're when you're operating it, uh, uh, when you're when you're flying. It's two. 
uh, below the decks. It's one guy who's, you know, checking the health to make sure everything's okay. And there's another guy walking through essentially all of these spaces that, uh, have to do with power generation because essentially you're, you're have a bunch of batteries and capacitors and stuff. And so they take the power from the reactor, store it there and then use it to, to launch the catapult. Uh, and, and the development work to get it to make sure that you have, you know, good, envelope information for everything that you got to launch it took some time uh and might have been a little early to need in terms of trying to figure out what's the most effective way to do that same thing on the other end of the boat um the advanced arresting gear uh you know again you've you've seen the old what is it mark 17 um uh arresting gear that's essentially just a big pile of hydraulics and just it's same same difference you know these are uh these are systems where there's instead of like a dozen guys back there that are just coated in grease, it's, you know, two roamers and then uh, a technology uh, that uses essentially uh, these these water, big water paddles to slow everything down when uh, the arresting gear comes in. And it's, you know, they did under engineered them initially. They kind of got them fixed and they're performing OK. You also have the advanced weapons elevators. There's a lot of written about the advanced we- weapons elevators. Um, those are, uh, they're not all done yet, but those are going okay. And it's not the problem with the elevators themselves. It has to do with, um, the actual installation and making sure the doors fit within the certain tolerances because, you know, heaven forbid something explodes in your magazine. You don't want it to blow out a door and like kill somebody on the other side when, you know, some, all sorts of energy goes up the shaft. So all that stuff has to get worked out. Um, but you're saying it's getting worked it, out. It's getting worked yeah. out. So we've been on, you know, so I wrote it, uh, I wrote it uh, in 19. And then uh, my colleague Mallory was out there last year. And so, I mean, the program's progressing. It's not going as fast as anybody would like. I think the initial deployment date was supposed to be 2017. That's when it commissioned. Yeah. 2017. So it was a Well, like ago. you said, though, this was ambitious to stick so many really ACAT 1D programs on a single platform. As you know, generational improvement. Um, you know, any one of those things would have been ambitious, right? So you cram three, four of them on on the Ford, and you're going to have delays, and you're going to have oh, it doesn't fit, and it worked at Lakehurst, and we take it to see, and it doesn't work, kind of stuff. You know, it reminds me of what I used to say when I was at V22, which is at the end of this, a this is why you have developmental test, and b systems commands, but at the end you get a capability. You know, I mean, you can be cynical about the cost and the time, but you get a capability that will be a generational improvement. So, and 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 it looks like that's going to be the case with the Ford. Um, the problem that you have to deal with, um, and we've reported extensively on, is that not having that carrier in the fleet is stressing everyone else out. So, you know, especially on the East Coast, you know, Truman's getting ready to go in the shoot again. Um, you know, I just got back from a double pump deployment. Uh, TR just got back from a double pump deployment. Um, so, I mean, the carrier forces is, is getting worked pretty hard and that will be alleviated when Ford goes on its first deployment in 22. Um, and then, you know, you'll start to get a little pressure, a little of that pressure off on the East coast, but that's been kind of one of the, one of the other sort of, uh, issues with having all of these technologies and taking so long to ring out as your legacy systems that you are getting worked really, really hard have been arguably overworked. Um, so as we sit, how many carriers do we have now? Just uh, remind me. Uh, so there are, uh, with the Ford, there are 11 carriers in commission. Okay. Of that, um, 
George Washington is finishing up its RCOH. Uh, Stennis has just entered RCOH, so they're not they're not playing. Truman is getting ready to dialed up, ready to go. Uh, and RCOH is recoring oh, right. right for the for the yeah. layman listener. Oh, pardon me. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, the the midlife refueling on the Nimitz class. So uh, at the twenty five year mark, every carrier goes in to get refueled, but it's also more or less a to the studs renovation of the ship. So essentially, when it's all done after four years, you get a you get a pretty much a whole you new ship. So you've got George Washington, which is uh, coming out of RCOH. You've got the Stennis, which is going in. So, all right. So 11 carriers minus two. How many you got there? The uh, Ike just came back after a double pump deployment. It's getting ready to go in for a year long availability in the yard um, uh, because it, it got worked pretty hard. Uh, who else is out on the East Coast? Um, you've got Truman getting ready to go. So, you know, on the books, you've got 11 carriers, but how many you have actually yeah. available to fight? And as a function of that, the COCOMs have had to reduce their presence quotient, right? I mean, there's been some of that happening. Yeah, you have to make some decisions. So, for for example, right now, um, the Reagan is operating in Fifth Fleet. So, Reagan is the Japan-based um, carrier uh, for the U.S. So, those are operating under slightly different rules. But essentially, you've got your uh, carrier um, in Japan and um, it goes on a patrol or two a year, and then it has its own sort of maintenance cycle in the Western Pacific. And the idea is it's supposed to be in the Western Pacific. However, uh, due to uh, lack of availability, they position the Reagan uh, instead of in the Pacific in the Middle East, uh, which is the first time a U.S.-Japan-based carrier has been in the Middle East since 2003 when um, – shoot. Kitty Hawk? Yeah, it was Kitty. Yeah, okay. thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Kitty Hawk went there to support the invasion. Yeah, um, so that's that's not ideal. No. Um, so Vincent just deployed yesterday, um, and it's going to do a big, large-scale exercise. But it's going to it's going to pick up some of that slack in the Western Pacific. But the margin is pretty thin. So um, so when Ford comes online, that's going to that's going to help with that a little bit. Okay. Well, Sam, I know you're a busy guy. There's a lot going on. So thanks for your time and. Uh, Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Ward. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the NATO Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.